Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Uh, it is my pleasure to uh, welcome you to a very special podcast uh, that we are conducting today at uh, the Research Society of International Law. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, international uh, for many years we have been hearing about the rise of a multipolar global order. Um, but today this is no longer an academic concept anymore. And the reality of a multipolar world uh, is now facing us uh, directly. Uh, because of this, we are seeing an intense resurgence of great power competitions and the world's superpowers, both established and emerging, have been locked in a high-stakes game of strategic influence, economic supremacy and technological dominance. This landscape of competition, as one might expect, has had significant implications on the fabric of international law. And we are seeing battlegrounds emerging all over the world um, on key strategic issues and key areas such as trade, sanctions, access to technology, territorial sovereignty, and broader issues of emerging technologies um, uh, and the rise of you know, mini-lateralism as well. Um, in Pakistan, for us as a middle power, it is you know, very important for us to understand the legal positions. Uh, at RSIL, we do not engage in political partisanship. We do not believe in um, emotional rhetoric, but we try to understand the legal positions uh, and try to understand the positions of state from a legal perspective. Um, and for this reason, uh, it is now our considered position that in order for Pakistan to evolve uh, and engage in this new world, it, it, we must engage with all states and begin to understand their positions fr uh, from their own viewpoint. Um, and for this reason, uh, now we are very pleased to uh, be engaging with the Chinese, uh, with the Chinese position, which has become critical over the years. We have seen the Chinese um, uh, really engage with international law uh, and really try to attempt to shape the global order uh, by you know effective and rigorous engagement with international law. I'm very pleased to have with me Professor Zhang Nyagin. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Professor. Correct. Uh, <laughs> professor Nyagin is a university professor at Fudan University, a very old and established university in China. And he also leads the director of, he's also the cent director for the Center of International Law at the Fudan University Law School. Uh, Mr. Uh, professor Nyagin is also the vice president of the China Society of International Law and visiting Islamabad currently for the Islamabad Security Dialogue. Uh, we're very, very pleased to have you here, sir, at RSIL, and very excited uh, to learn more about China, its experience with international law, and your views on how uh, international law is, the role international law is playing in great power relations today. <clears throat> Welcome again. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, first, uh, I appreciate your invitation come here with your society and also I uh, appreciate the uh, invitation of the Pakistan government uh, for my attending the Islamabad uh, security uh, dialogue forums and uh, it's my first visit to Pakistan and I hope uh, uh, in the future I will come here again absolutely and uh, talk uh, with your colleague and uh, uh, for the history of the international law in China is not a longer and uh, uh, because uh, the uh, you know the international law already in the Europe and then the developer overseas and uh, I think uh, 
older generation in the late Qing Dynasty and early uh, period of the Republic in 1920s. They went to the uh, United States and uh, UK to study international law and then returned to China mm. and teach in the uh, Chinese university, including our university, in 1911. It's the one of the earliest university of the public international in modern China. Very interesting. And actually the professor Wang Chonghui, he was the uh, uh, first uh, uh, JSD uh, holder from the United States and became the high rank official for the Republic of China since the 1911. Right. Uh, right. So that's the uh, beginning of international law in China. And after uh, People's Republic of China was established in 1949, uh, October 1st, and uh, uh, we continue our research and uh, studying uh, uh, teacher international law in mainland. Uh, you know the uh, political separation since then uh, from the uh, uh, October 1st, 1949. And uh, uh, for uh, China, I mean the People's Republic of China, and uh, we uh, pay more attention for the international law. Since the PRC was established, the foreign minister, the first uh, foreign minister, Zhou Enlai, uh, he was very famous and to initiative with the uh, uh, neighboring country to uh, uh, promote the bilateral relations and the so-called uh, uh, peaceful core uh, existence and uh, for five principles, peaceful core existence principles. That's become the uh, international principle in regional and global. That means the, from the very beginning of the PRC, we pay attention for international law. Mm. And uh, for the teaching in university, uh, for historical reasons, uh, began in uh, late 1970s. When I went to the law school in 1979, I became the first class for international law study. Really? Wow. Yes, I have studied and researched teaching international for more than 14 years. And after graduating from the, my mother law school, uh, East China Institute of the Politics and Law in 1983, I went to the Fudan and pursued my uh, graduate degree and JSD, uh, uh, and then I became the law faculty in the Fudan since 1986. Wow. So uh, uh, the international law is the uh, basic course for our uh, uh, law schools. Right. So that's for my uh, personal uh, career to study uh, international law and to uh, teach international law. And uh, I think uh, for general understanding Chinese government for international law, I just mentioned uh, for a peaceful coexistence actually uh, following the Charter of United Nations. But for historical reason, China uh, return to the United, uh, United Nations, uh, uh, that means the, uh, uh, the legitimate seats for China, but only People's Republic of China since 1949, October 1st. In 1971, 1971, so uh, uh, half century passed, 
And uh, for this reason, for United Nations at that time, China, uh, I think, uh, should be because China was the founding member of the United Nations in 1945 mm. yeah. for political reasons. And China was not uh, continued membership uh, until 1971. This, this brings me to an interesting point, which I wanted to talk about. That we see that even though, you know, like you said, obviously in the roots of international law in China are as early as the early 1900s and then in the United Nations. But for the initial part of the United, when the UN framework came about, we did not see China take a very active role for the first 25, 30 years. Yeah. And even in the 1970s, like you mentioned, these law mm -hmm. schools started coming about. Uh, China's engagement was, you know, slow and cautious. Yeah. And now, to you know, around by the late 1990s, early 2000s, you know, mm -hmm. China seemed to have picked up pace along with its, you know, I think it... Uh, it it goes hand in hand when it's China's economic takeoff began. Yeah. We saw that its engagement with international institutions and international law generally changed. And now in 2023, another 22 decades later, we are seeing that it has reached a position where it now wants to actually contribute to how norms should be developed and play an active role in kind of uh, reshaping the legal architecture. Is that a correct assessment? And yes, you are correct behind? because uh, actually uh, maybe we can take a three phase yeah. after China returned to United Nations in 1971. Three phase. First phase from the 19, early 1970s to uh, late 1970s because due to the uh, domestic political turmoil, we say, yeah. and uh, only 1979 we officially uh, uh, ended such a kind of domestic uh, uh, turmoil. Right. Uh, we say we open the door for foreigners and we take the domestic reform. So that's the from the 1979. That's the year I went to the law school studying mm. uh, law and particular study international law. Right. So that's the first phase. At that phase uh, period of time, China, I think, did not play very active role in the United Nations. I think only 1976, uh, when the uh, former senior leader, uh, party leader Deng Xiaoping, uh, went to the United Nations address the, for the United Nations General Assembly. There's the only events in that time. Mm. And uh, a second phase from the late 1917s uh, exactly in 1979, changed the policy, open door. Open door, we need the international law, mm. generally, right. not only for foreign minister, for generally. And in particular for the open door, and we uh, hope more foreign investment come to China. Mm. And we need to know what is the rule for the uh, uh, business uh, with the foreign company. So we need to know the international law generally, particularly for the economic law. So since then, going to the uh, 2001, that's the second period because 2001 is a landmark for China accessing into the WTO, WTO World course. Trade Organization, and the change of China and also change the world right. until now, right. I think. The second phase, China starting gradually to know what is a function for international law, right. not only for political 
uh, reason, but also mostly for the economical reasons. And uh, we uh, 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 have the more uh, institution and uh, 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 university, law school to offer the uh, international course. Mm. Uh, in addition, my university, uh, my mother law schools, and also for other law schools to teach talents of international law. Right. And also China Society of International was established in 1982. Right. So it's my society since then. I'm, I'm the member even I uh, was the students can uh, participate the society annual conference. And uh, uh, so that's the second phase China gradually to play more active mm. Uh, uh, including China, uh, 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 arranged the uh, uh, judge go to the uh, Internet Court of Justice in 1986. Mm. Uh, first, uh, after uh, China returned to the uh, United Nations, uh, so we appointed a judge because China is uh, one of the permanent uh, member of Security Councils. Yeah. Usually, should appoint the member Canada uh, for a uh, 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 vote of this General Assembly. Right. And since then, uh, Chinese uh, 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 from the 1986, and we have the judge sitting in the Hague. Right. So that's the uh, uh, one sign. We actively involved in the international law practice, and uh, also we uh, send some uh, 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 experts to the United Nations, and mm. also specialized engines such as uh, WIPO, uh, World Intellectual Property uh, yeah. Organizations. And so that's the uh, for second phase. And uh, but uh, since 2001, I think uh, uh, developed quickly. And yeah. the one reason is a, a World Trade Organization. Before that, uh, China did not uh, involve any third party disputes settlement with Chinese government, mm. ICG or other uh, uh, it laws international yeah. tribunal for law of sea, mm. but uh, China exception into WTO is a compulsory jurisdictions. Yeah, and uh, uh, for the trade disputes, we had to go to the Geneva to settle disputes with other members, including the United States, European Union, and other members. So also uh, China take active uh, initiative case against the United States particularly. Hmm. So we need legal experts. For example, I was the legal experts not only for public intent but also trade law. Right. I was the first uh, 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 listed as the panelist for uh, trade disputes for WTO. And then we training more experts for the trade law and then we learn more from the uh, uh, existing member United States. Actually, we invite the United States and the European Union uh, uh, attorney come to Beijing mm. to offer the course. <laughs> <laughs> really, this this is fascinating, sir. Because yeah. I want to, I I really want to kind of get dig deeper into this because for Pakistan and especially one of the core purpose of you know our society is to develop capacity in international law, in mm -hmm. technical areas of international law in Pakistan, because we feel that Pakistan's state practice and positions on key issues will be better informed if you have domestic expertise on yeah. issues. And it, it also helps you now in this, you know, multipolar world to predict 
what is going to happen yeah. you know rather than just reacting like we seem to always do so rsl over the past 30 years we you know a f- core focus of our work has been on capacity building developing courses mm. teaching people and now you know but it's it's been a challenge because a trying to make people the first in the first decade of our evolution we were trying to explain to people why international law is even important people thought that it doesn't it's not even important it's just something which big countries do and it doesn't you know for us for small countries there's no space for international law so why bother that thinking over time has changed we've played a major yes. role in that now people in pakistan policy makers stakeholders understand the importance of international law but we don't know how to develop that specialist capacity you know so by by using i mean when it comes to china i i'm really fascinated to know that how does a country which 50 years ago did not even engage with these mechanisms how has it reached the point where it not only with the wto being a prime example not only has it exceeded to the wto just 20 years ago but yeah. now is leading it and it it's how did it develop so many domestic experts mm-hmm. in wto law mm-hmm. uh, was it because your universities are structured in this way was there political will from government at the highest level which pushed it and how did you get experience of international systems like you know beyond china i think uh, referred to the uh, trade law uh, trade law i think is uh, based on the international general because wto is a trade based the rule based uh, yeah. uh, 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 mechanism so we uh, take the national level and the provincial level and the uh, school levels the university mm. levels three levels for the national level we uh, established the national society of wto law right uh, i'm also vice uh, president right. of the society uh, since 2001 uh, right. before china access into wto we prepare right. because we need a, a talents uh, experts for wto rules Right. and we have society we have annual conference and then we have the uh, uh many uh, uh symposium and a program right. and the publications so that's the national uh, uh efforts that's supported by the state council right and uh, for right. the provincial uh, levels we encourage uh provincial because we have the 32 provinces uh, for example beijing Shanghai and also uh, Xinjiang autonomy that's the second level like the states or federal uh, uh, countries right so uh, establish the uh, provincial society to study international for example Shanghai uh, I'm the founding uh, chairman of the Shanghai society of the WTO law right uh, we enroll the member locally university institution company government official judge if they are waiting to join our society wow. we have any conference and also we have many uh, symposium discuss the case and submit to some suggestion for the national government in particular for movcom that means the administration commerce uh, which is charge of the uh, uh, wto affair mm. so uh, that's the provincial levels and uh, for provincial level uh, we uh, have the university based support mm-hmm. for example fudan university uh, gave us many support financially right. and also uh, the office 
and uh, uh, also for the university, uh, uh, for uh, many uh, uh, school and university established WTO institution. Wow. And offer the course and uh, also uh, uh, offer the uh, uh, LM or PhD uh, uh, programs right. since uh, 2001. Right. So that's the three levels. And then because China is a larger country, we have the huge populations. Yeah. And uh, uh, so uh, we need to educate them uh, not only uh, for WTO case, but also for uh, uh, business uh, mm -hmm. after graduation, go to the company. They know the anti-dumping and the subsidiary countermeasure and for this treated uh, remedy and also for other WTO rules. Hmm. That's hmm. for them to uh, working. Right. I think since then we 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 have trained uh, many uh, talents uh, national wide uh, uh, for 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 business. Right. That's 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 absolutely fascinating. I mean, just to know that you have a such a detailed multi-tiered structure yes. domestically. Uh, that is, you know, uh, been able to train such a large number of uh, lawyers and experts, not just on the international, like you mentioned, but also on domestic regulation as well. I, I want to discuss uh, some, you know, specific issues of international trade law as well. Uh, you know, I we know that the U.S. and China is, you know, uh, there's a lot of there's been a lot of, uh, you know, cases. There's been a lot of dis, uh, disagreement uh, on different issues. Um, and uh, for for China, it has been that you know it for for getting market economy status. You know, it, China feels that 15 years after its accession, it should automatically have been granted market economy status. And you know that is not we're seeing. You know, uh, for different uh, reasons, uh, the Western countries are not of willing to offer that uh, yet to China. Uh, apart from that, you know, uh, the U.S. argues that China has you know forced technology transfers. Uh, that it's the role of state-owned enterprises is dispro disproportionately large, um, and uh, it, but increasingly, because of all these factors, the uh, you know dispute settlement processes also uh, we perhaps see uh, China gain, gaining the ascendancy in dispute settlement mechanisms, and uh, there doesn't there seems to be I don't know my sense is that Western countries seem to be stepping back from dispute settlement processes uh, uh, as China's ascendancy has increased. So I don't know whether that is a correct assessment in my view or not. Uh, and how do you see these criticisms on China's, you know, transparency or regulation internally? Uh, uh, you know, how does China respond to these criticisms? I think uh, first I need to clarify the legal issues regarding to the uh, market economy, non-market economy, and also the forced uh, uh, transfer uh, technology for these yeah. two legal issues. And uh, first, uh, I would say that the since China exists into WTO, China has changed thousand domestic law regulations yeah. because we need to comply with WTO law. Right. And uh, uh, the the law actually is a treaty. If you access into WTO, you have the obligation to implement it domestically. Right. That's why we change uh, many domestic laws. Right. But for WTO rules, does not say anything about a non-market economy. If mm. we read the 
hundred pages, thousand pages the legal test of WTO rules. Right. Does not say anything non-market economy. Right. And uh, uh, only the wording appear in the China uh, uh, protocol hmm. exception to WTO two thousand one. Right. That's the article uh, fifteen. Okay. And uh, so that's the uh, uh, the facts. It's the mm. legal facts. <laughs> if mm. we read the legal test, uh, WTO existing right. law the negotiation single package, and the China protocol uh, for accession to WTO. So that's the legal issues. We need to take the legal test as legal basis. Mm. Yes. And uh, but why the case arising? Uh, uh, after uh, expiry of the, uh, we say the transactional period from 2001 to, to uh, 2016, the case arising uh, between China and the EU and also uh, with the United States. The case went to the panel uh, proceedings. And uh, uh, I'm the legal advisor for MOVCOM, uh, China uh, Ministry of the Commerce. Right. Uh, the issue is that uh, the article China accession into WTO only says that the if China accession into WTO under the general rule of the WTO already have that I mean the anti-dumping agreement as the part of Uruguay on the negotiation uh, results uh, for the. Uh, margin of anti-dumping depends on the export goods price and import into the destination countries importing. So you can uh, take the uh, margins. Mm. That's exactly price. So that's based on the market. Yes, uh, general agreement the telephone trade get we say in nineteen fourteen eight. And the 1995 WTO still based on the GATT. For this mechanism is based on market economy. That's true. Mm. That's true. And uh, but for China protocol, which says that because China want to take a domestic reform to change somehow, in particular for the uh, stand-alone enterprise how to operate in the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, generally, China want to separate the ownership and the operation. That means the ownership become the states. Right. That's the state-owned enterprises. No change, even now. But the operation should be marketing. That means the company should go to market. You can decide what you want to produce and what you to sell, go to abroad. That's absolutely the market orientations. Hmm. So that's separation ownership and operations. Right. And for our understanding, WTO allowed ownership because the protocol does not say China must change ownership. Right. No. Only say you should operate in market. If it does not operate in market condition, the import country, EU country or United States may take the condition, non-market condition, for particular case, not for the country as a whole. Okay. Okay. So, the case arising, the EU and the United States want to take the 
uh, case of uh, trade China as a whole. Mm. As that means for particular uh, products, if uh, uh, export from China go to the United States or European Union, uh, no difference impose the discriminated uh, anti-dumping duty. Mm. That's violation of the WTO law, including Chinese protocol extension right. into WTO. That disputes. And uh, I think finally disputes uh, has not been uh, finally uh, issued a panel report mm. by the negotiation between China and the United, uh, European Union because first the case and the United States did not initiate the second case the following year. Right. So it seems to me the case has to be settled. Right. Settled. So that first case. And uh, for the second case, uh, forced uh, transfer technology, uh, United States initial case, uh, EU want to follow. But uh, in fact, the case uh, did not go to even the panel proceedings. Right. Stop. Right. So this seems to be more, you're saying, of a political position, but in the legal, in the dispute resolution mechanisms, we're not seeing it play out to the extent that it dominates the political. Yes, I think the political issues, not the legal issues, yeah, right. actually. Right. For legal issues, you need to read the legal test. Yeah. <laughs> What's the legal uh, basis? So actually, uh, United States, uh, European Union uh, had the uh, disputes with Chinese government. You need to go to the negotiation table. Yeah. It's a negotiation to settle some misunderstanding. Maybe you misunderstood or your misunderstood or whatever. You need to talk him. Yeah, but no. but I, this 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 question of negotiation brings me to a related question about the general Doha round as well. I mean, the Doha round has been stuck now for twenty years, mm -hmm. and you know the, the it seems that the differences between the developed and developing countries, uh, you know, seem to be actually widening. Mm. Um, and uh, to the point that, you know, when we read these articles, I don't know if that is the case in practice, but at least certainly academic articles seem to indicate that, you know, uh, uh, the, the stalling of the Doha round shows that multilateralism generally is declining and countries are moving away from WTO type mechanisms to smaller groupings, which can be much better and faster. Uh, that I think is a bit simplistic because, you know, the WTO is a very structured and a very major process. It cannot just be, you know, sidelined by, you know, these small regional groupings. We should not have the kind of dispute settlement mechanism yeah. or the global authority, which something yeah. like the WTO has. But do you think that this basic concern is correct? And the fact that, you know, we are deadlocked in the Doha round, uh, you know, is does that augur you know, poorly for the WTO in general. And since China is clearly benefiting from uh, having a rules-based WTO order, is China worried about the slow pace of negotiations? I think maybe we can take this issue uh, from two respects. First right. respect for the uh, agenda of development, that's Doha Round, right. uh, uh, initiated in the 2001, exactly same year for China access yeah. into WTO. And uh, uh, agenda for developing countries, hmm. because the Yulagulon negotiation initiated by the developed country and the developing country, including the Pakistan, the India, the South yeah. Africa, 
Latin American country concerning the uh, telephone uh, issues mm. and the market exceptions. Right. Not a favor, even uh, they are the uh, principle we call a differentiation uh, regarding to developing a least developed country, but not enough. Mm. So uh, that's the agenda for development. And uh, uh, it's a comprehensive uh, uh, package uh, uh, mandate for the negotiation. Uh, originally, it should be uh, ended the 2005, hmm. July 2005, because that deadline uh, depends on the United States Congress authorized the uh, negotiation power for the prisoner to negotiation hmm. for trade issues. Hmm. Hmm. But unfortunately, uh, Due to the 911 uh, events, the United States initiated two war. In particular, 2003, the war against the Iraq Saddam Hussein. Mm -hmm. So, the seemed to me, seemed to the internet community, the United States Congress did not pay more attention for the trade issue, for the anti-terrorist, mm -hmm. and did not extend the authorization for negotiations. Right. Even partially until 2007, that's the 2005 Hong Kong military conference decided to uh, close the negotiation as soon as possible because the Congress gave a very short extension for the negotiation. Hmm. But the 2006 finally uh, uh, declared the fail to get a consensus right. for uh, uh, conclusion of negotiation comprehensive. So that's the first phase for the Doha round development. I think developing country and the least of the developed country are disappointed. Mm, yes. And then go to the next issue for the dispute segment that McKellen, because now WTO uh, settlement that McKellen seemed to me paralyzed. Yes, absolutely. Many, many cases pending for review, but uh, no one knows when will be reviewed. So that's the from the 2007. Right. Uh, 2017. 17. 17, yes. not 2007. Yeah, yeah. 2017, the uh, uh, Trump administration uh, went to the White House and the change of the policy, uh, we say unilateral policy, not only for trade war between China and the United States uh, initiated, uh, mm -hmm. unilaterally impose the 25% uh, duty on all the Chinese goods go to the United States. Yeah. That's the violation of most favored nation treatment. That's a basic rule for the WTO. And also, uh, the United States accused the appeal body uh, uh, violated the uh, understanding dispute settlement at the DSU, mm. uh, but the majority member uh, do not agree with the United States accusation. And so, but it still caused this paralyzation at, of the dispute settlement system by the U.S. taking a step back from it or not engaging with it. Yes, because the United States uh, was uh, unsatisfied for three basic legal issues. Hmm. One is not for China, zeroing for the anti-dumping because there were 16 cases against the United States. First, the European Union and Japan, Tokyo, and finally, maybe China. Yeah. So uh, the uh, ruling made by the appeal body uh, consistently 
ruling that the United States violated WTO rule, right. anti-dumping rules. Right. But the United States is strongly against uh, appeal body rulings. Mm. So that's the one issue is generally. Right. And then the two, another issue is a particular target China. One is the, for the public body. Mm. That's for the uh, subsidiary and anti-countermeasure uh, uh, right. uh, agreement. Right. Uh, United States accused the appeal body uh, uh, make the uh, mistakes to interpret the uh, subsidiary countermeasure agreement for public body. Mm. So, but it's a purely legal issues, the interpretation of treaties. Mm. Mm. And the third is the non-market economy. Mm. That's the, I just mentioned, yeah. uh, related to the China uh, protocols and into WTO. So for these legal issues, for my personal observation, it should be uh, based on the legal test. And if the existing law, you say you want to change, you need to negotiation yeah. with the other WTO member, not in the United States, you must change because that's the multilateral mechanism. Right. Uh, WTO has the 164 members and the traditionally should uh, uh, make a decision uh, uh, that means the positive consensus. Hmm. Any member has power to veto. Yeah. United States and a small country is equal. Yeah. That's the existing law made by the United States already exactly. during the gap period of 1948 to 1995. Not made by developing country or hmm. least by the United States. Yeah. Now they want to change the rules. So this, this is very interesting because I mean this this period that you're talking about I think this it started uh, for the it came out in the open in the Trump era when Donald Trump was president when he you know and and the U.S. before that used to be known as you know being very kind of um, you know subtle in its uh, diplomatic engagements mm -hmm. and you know uh, relying on international law and diplomacy to kind of get its objectives but you know Donald Trump came out and said things very clearly that, you know, China is a threat and, you know, they're doing this and the WTO and all these bodies are actually harming U.S. interests. And mm -hmm. that's why I took a step back from it. Whereas now we're seeing China is using, like you said, relying on the law, legal yes. procedures and, treaties, and yeah. it's a it seems to be a reversal of position. But, you know, the U.S. is still, you know, uh, uh, you know, it, its power is, you know, cannot be denied. And the fact that yes. it is disengaging from the WTO in the manner that you describe, do you think that uh, uh, is has a dangerous repercussion on how, you know, effective that like is there is there a concern that the WTO itself might become dysfunctional? because of these uh, developments and what is China doing to counter that? Yes, that's the uh, questions and uh, also challenges faced uh, by the international community. Yeah. And uh, because last uh, July uh, 12 uh, uh, conference, miniature conference, we say uh, uh, 12C in Geneva decided to uh, take the new agenda uh, reform of WTO. Right. Because WTO was established in 1995 and uh, virtually three decades ago. And now a uh, member uh, become more and more. And also uh, technology development and uh, the world change. So uh, WTO law should be, must be changed somehow. Mm. So it depends on negotiation. Right. Uh, Seems to me 
last year, the, the military conference decided to follow the Doha partially agenda to uh, negotiation uh, for the uh, reform of WTO. Right. The United States uh, did agree to uh, make efforts to uh, promote the reform of WTO right. uh, since last July. But the critical issue is the, uh, shall we uh, uh, take the appeal body so-called with two-time dispute mechanism or uh, become the one-time only for panel, hmm. no appeal body review. Right. If take the one-time, not a two-time, means fundamental change existing law. Right. Majority member do not agree with the United States proposal. And right. the United States submitted the, uh, I think not publicly uh, disclosed, but I was told that in the Geneva, our mission uh, uh, take the uh, closed door negotiation. Uh, uh, China does not uh, agree with the United States to totally change the existing law. Right. So that's the critical issues. Seem to me that, seem to internet community, should the United States change the law fundamentally? For what reason? For the reason I just mentioned, three legal issues. If for three legal issues, let the legal experts to change, mm. to interpret it again, not by the government, simply a uh, uh, statement to say you must change it. Right. So right. it's not appropriately reasonable. Mm. So we, we hope negotiation find a way, compromises, mm. and uh, to uh, uh, promote the multilateral-based WTO uh, systems, not fundamentally change it, but uh, improve, for example, limits the, uh, the uh, appeal body interpretation, mm. uh, whatever, you, you should uh, uh, revise the rules, but not change the rule fundamentally. Right. So right. we are looking forward very much for next year, because the next year, uh, the uh, next uh, military conference held, whether they can resolve these disputes between the United States and uh, majority member, including European Union, Japan. So uh, that's the critical issues. Hmm. I, Professor, I can go, you know, talk with you for much longer on trade, since you know you have such access to such you know such a wealth of information. But there's so many other topics to also discuss. Yes, so I've also uh, so, so so the second kind of big picture uh, issue, which uh, you know we are increasingly following closely, again from a legal perspective, um, is obviously China's position on the law of the sea um, and you know its application in the South China Sea. Now uh, in Pakistan, uh, not many people know the intricacies of this particular uh, dispute. Um, but the, the, the general perception that, you know, a lay person gets, uh, you know, non-technical, but, you know, just the person who's broadly interested is that China has taken a very um, in, an, a unique and also quite an aggressive interpretation of UNCLOS, how it applies to territorial sovereignty um, with regards to the territory and also with the exclusive economic zones. Um, and, uh, you know, the examples of Chinese state practice of land reclamation, islands construction, uh, military construction as well. And now increasingly we are seeing 
maritime enforcement actions. You know, yeah. domestic laws have been passed which have yeah. allowed the Coast Guard and maritime militia to enforce these uh, laws. Uh, but alongside this, we are now seeing the U.S. Um, and other countries. Uh, first of all, a lot of other countries seem to be in the region. You know, Vietnam, Philippines, Malaysia. They seem to be, uh, you know, pushing against the Chinese position. You had obviously the landmark, uh, you know, unclos uh, our tribunal decision in again involving the Philippines and China in 2013. That was quite closely watched by observers here. And now you have you know, the U.S. engaging in freedom of navigation operations yes. in the South China Sea. And all of this seems that, you know, uh, we watch with a lot of tension because it seems that this is heading towards a military uh, confrontation as well. And there are so many things at stake, you know, not only the, you know, there are territorial claims, mm -hmm. but then there is also access to natural resources and you yeah. know what the, and then the maritime navigation routes yeah. and the increasing role of India in this whole equation. So it seems to be something which I think Professor Bruno Sima also today at the Islamabad Security Dialogue mentioned that you know the main uh, you know geopolitical and the main factors are now moving from the West to the Indo-Pacific, and this seems to be at the center of it. Yes. And international law is such... So, you know, I just want to, to get an understanding of China's position. You know, it is... Uh, um, the Americans, um, you know, when I read their article, you know, they, uh, their, their uh, journals, they talk about how China is using lawfare, you know, to aggressively push for a certain interpretation of international law and this is something which you know if the chinese are doing this they have learned this by the western playbook because the west also used to take a position political and then supplant it with you know aggressive legal you know arguments research and you know pushing through so it's not something which is new uh, and it seems but it's interesting for us because china is relying even what we see with regards to the 2013 Philippines decision that China came out with consistent policy positions after this as well, which kind of challenged the legitimacy of the award or tried to give a new interpretation of it. In fact, an interesting example, like when the decision came out, RSIL, we d developed a basic brief, uh, you know, on our website on this decision and what it says. Mm -hmm. It was just a simple brief. And I see, you know, because I get the website statistics every month for our communications team. Um, that article from 10 years ago is still downloaded uh, hundreds and sometimes thousands of times from China. So that means that, does that mean that China has also, like you mentioned in WTO, developed a lot of indigenous capacity on the law of the sea by having a lot of domestic expertise? How is, how is your engagement evolving with UNCLOS? Thank you for your question on the law of sea. Uh, I think the uh, China Society of International Law published the uh, reply for the uh, tribunal award in right. 19, uh, 2016. We published our reply uh, entitled the uh, uh, critic a critique, yes, yes comments, I'm aware of uh, that, yes. Uh, published by the Oxford University Press, that's by the China, Chinese Journal of International Law. Uh, mm. In 2019, uh, 500 pages. Wow. It's a similar with <laughs> award. We say you have 500 pages <laughs> award, we need to reply you right. <laughs> page by page. <laughs> right, right. And I personally, uh, because as the our society uh, work, 
uh, uh, I'm the person that involves these uh, documents prepare right and uh, uh, final uh, checking out and uh, Sentence by sentence, words by words, right. English version. So I'm talking to the right person then. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So it's a hard work. And uh, first, I would say uh, Chinese government take the long stand position to settle disputes on territory disputes and uh, maritime boundaries. Before China uh, ratified the uh, uh, United Nations Law of Sea Convention on close, and China uh, already settled uh, territorial disputes with Myanmar and uh, other neighboring countries uh, in 1990s with the uh, Russia now. So uh, only one uh, territorial dispute unsettled with the India. Right. But we are uh, uh, looking forward very much for future peaceful resettlement between China and uh, India for the territory disputes. Right. Because China uh, has the position to settle territory disputes and then extend to the maritime boundaries by negotiation. Mm -hmm. not by the uh, third party uh, adjudicate uh, either court or arbitration right. tribunal. That's not only for long, uh, uh, South China Sea, right. I just mentioned, uh, since 1915, the first set of territorial disputes with neighboring country. So, so China takes a long-standing, long-standing. Yeah. That means if we have disputes on territory, on maritime disputes, we should negotiate because the critical issues for any disputes on territory and maritime boundaries, you must go to the history. Right. Not a trade issue, maybe current business. Right. For territory, you need to consider uh, the historical uh, considerations. How to take both sides right. from the historical perspectives. So we need to negotiations and take two sides. Also, we are neighboring countries. Mm. Uh, we, we live in neighboring, cannot change. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we need to peaceful settle disputes and forever, forever. So that's the Chinese long-standing position and my understanding, not only for South China Sea, right. that's the uh, incessant positions. Right, right. So that's first issues. We must understand what's Chinese position. Maybe for other countries they say we should go to the inner court of justice. Yeah. But a different country has different history and a different uh, position. So we need to respect uh, hmm. each country position for territory maritime uh, boundary delimitations. Right. So I think that's general rule right. of international law. <laughs> right, right. That, that's interesting because, you know, coming to boundary disputes, uh, yeah. and you mentioned uh, India as well, we have saw that, you know, and I have a couple of questions on this, yeah. so I just want to kind of lay the, 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 the ground for it first. Yeah. Uh, we do see that, you know, uh, there has been a confrontation, uh, India's actions, uh, unilateral actions in Kashmir on 5th August 2019. Yes. Um, 
also involve you know has implications for a third country china because yes. of the line of actual control yeah. and we saw tensions spill up with the ladakh border dispute it's something yeah. which you know uh, a lot of people watch closely but the legal aspects are often yeah. not understood yeah. um, china now uh, and last month or i believe two months ago has also actually begun to rename certain places in arunachal pradesh and argue that you know these are traditionally part of tibet there is but the indians are also building uh, our assessment is that perhaps india took this action so, so that ladakh issue with china could be separated from mm-hmm. the larger mm-hmm. question of jammu and kashmir mm-hmm. and so jammu and kashmir can become a park chi- park india matter yes. and ladakh can be a separate matter like you mentioned with china yes. um, that obviously is something which uh, uh, pakistan you know uh, Uh, Pakistan does not agree with because you know this it was meant to be always a trilateral kind of an issue mm-hmm. uh, and if India wants to take this approach it has to be done through negotiation and mediation and agreement mm-hmm. of all parties rather than unilaterally uh, as well so uh, just i wanted your your views on that but beyond that you know i i've i've been reading uh, president z's uh, you know the different doctrines and in that the global security initiative the concept paper which the chinese foreign ministry released uh, i i believe it was 2 uh, years ago uh, yeah. the, the, so there are some 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 important words which i wanted to just highlight and you know get your take on it first which i feel can be very useful to pakistan in its dispute resolution with its neighbors which you cannot yeah. resolve you know so first of all you know um uh, uh, it says that you know it stay committed to abiding by the purposes and principles of the un charter the various confrontations and injustices in the world today did not occur because the purposes and principles of the un charter are outdated but because they are not effectively maintained and implemented that uh-huh. is an interesting point uh, secondly uh, it says the legitimate and reasonable security concerns of all countries should be taken seriously and addressed properly not persistently ignored or systematically challenged uh-huh. that is also very interesting yeah. then it says the point which you raised staying committed to peacefully resolving differences and disputes between countries through dialogue and consultation uh-huh, yeah. which is the point you just raised right now um, and uh, you know promote political settlement of international and regional hotspot issues yeah. you know encourage countries concerns to overcome differences now with regards to india pak relations and especially you know the the big question of kashmir in pakistan yes. uh, when it comes to international law that seems to be the only issue that matters to most pakistanis yes. um, we are concerned in pakistan because we relied on the un charter yeah uh, and the un security council resolutions uh, which established first and foremost that this is a dispute yeah i'm not going to go into the contents of the security council what was pakistan supposed to do what mm-hmm. was india it now seems quite clear 70 years later that the proposed formula which the security council had proposed in 1951 52 is no longer practical today but pakistan's point is that the issue is still a international dispute the security council resolutions crystallized this yeah. whereas india wants to make it first it wanted to make it a bilateral issue uh and I pakistan see. as a sovereign courtesy said I it see. could uh, be but we said that it doesn't uh, <coughs> it still does not com- oblige us to comply by and now the indians are saying that this is an internal matter it was never a dispute it's an internal integral part of india yes, yeah never something to be discussed and the world community is also seems to be silent because of india's dip- you know economic clout 
I think that you know President Z's doctrines on this is useful because it take looks after smaller countries like Pakistan, mm-hmm. which has to rely. We have to rely on you know rules to exist. Yeah, it cannot be that you know now India is powerful economically, so it's it's inconvenient to criticize them or inconvenient. So do you see that you know they these doctrines taking you know it, it benefits countries like this, but certain other countries will also be opposed to this approach how do you think that this security initiative can play a role in for example bringing pakistan india to the table uh, because pakistan has been wanting to negotiate for decades now and the indian position is only getting harder and harder i see uh, follow my explanation for chinese uh, long standing uh, position regarding to the territory disputes maritime boundary delimitation disputes and uh, a second issue is, I think, case by case. Hmm. First, uh, you need to respect the, uh, each sovereign state's waiting to settle disputes uh, in what kind of approaches. Right. So that's the equality of the sovereign states. We need to mutually respect it. Not a unilateral, but you need to mutually respect each other. So right. that's the, the charter of United Nation. Uh, Article 2, uh, right. Paragraph 1, and also Article uh, 33 for the uh, negotiation peaceful settlement right. disputes. That's right. the general rule of the international law. Right. And the second, the case by case is very important because you mentioned the uh, disputes between the India and the Pakistan after uh, 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 decolonizations. So that's the case. And also, maybe we can see uh, Ukraine crisis yeah. and uh, uh, former Soviet Union and Ukraine and then the Russia and uh, Palestine. So, and there's, of course, yes, yeah. each case you must know the particular historical yeah. background. Yeah, of course. And uh, uh, for my understanding, under the Charter of the Nation, no matter large one, small one, Sovereign states are equal. Yeah. Should in be, theory, yes. Yes. <laughs> mutual respected. Yeah. And then the, you need to negotiations. Yeah. To settle disputes case by case. Right. Of course, if another party, for example, uh, Philippines want to go to the tribunal, say that the unclosed provide a legal basis, China says no, 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 because China make a reservation for the solar party settle disputes maritime time delimitation and also first you need to settle territory. That's the islands. Uh, South China Sea, many islands. That's not for maritime time issue for territory land. So that means uh, case by case you need to resolve the legal test. Yeah. For your uh, case, uh, uh, India and Pakistan, I'm not an expert for this case, yeah. but. Uh, in fact, the Security Council at that time make a resolution. So that means you need to consider the legal basis. And for Ukraine, you need to go back to the uh, former Soviet Union, uh, how to divide the uh, Republic uh, boundaries. And then mm-hmm. the, after fall down former Soviet Union, uh, uh, how uh, uh, did they to decide the, the uh, uh, independent territory after mm-hmm. Uh, fall down the former Soviet Union. So you need to consider historical background and uh, bilaterally uh, for uh, these uh, parties, 
Uh, right. So I think the case by case is very important. Yeah. And the uh, uh, Internet Court of Justice did does settle many dispute settlement the morning time uh, delimitations. Uh, but uh, if you read the case, you may find some cases settled well, some cases even ruling made. But the two parties, for example, 2012, mm. uh, Nicaragua and Colombia, they want to settle it they went to the uh, ICG, didn't make the ruling for the uh, morning time delimitation including the uh, uh, St. Andrews Island uh, dispute settlements for land. But Colombia did not uh, uh, certified, <laughs> was not certified of rulings. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think uh, even ICG made the rulings, but some cases may not settled. Yeah, so, so in this regard, do you think that China under this global security initiative will play a more active role in getting countries to sit on the table and negotiate. Because yeah. as we saw, a recent exciting example has been the Iran-Saudi Arabia detente. Yes. As well. So do you see that, you know, China playing a more active role and, you know, uh, in, in, in bringing this expertise of negotiation and consultation? And what, yes. do you think the, what do you think the the opportunities and challenges are going to be in that? Yes, I, I think China now is a uh, concern to uh, promote the global governance, including this peaceful mm-hmm. settlement disputes, and very important for yeah. uh, global governance. And in addition, uh, Internet Court of Justice, at laws, or uh, investment disputes, etc., uh, uh, or PCA, Permanent Court of Arbitration, hmm. for all these international global uh, adjudicated uh, already existed. Hmm. But it seemed to us that it's not enough. Yeah. So China recently proposed to have the new institution, so-called International Mediation Court. Yes, this is something which is very ex- interesting for very us. Very exciting. Could, could you please explain what this would entail and what would be the scope of this international organization? Up to date, uh, I only know that uh, <laughs> Chinese government make a proposal to invite interesting countries hmm. to settle down and to negotiation what kind of law should be held. Hmm. That's a Chinese idea, a uh, 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 common consultation. Right, right. And uh, common interests. And then we can enjoy the results to settle disputes. So by mediations. This, is this scope limited to commercial disputes? No, not for commercial. Really? It's a state to state because state we state already right. have the commercial yeah. ICC uh, in the Excel Paris and, and these, yeah. Switzerland uh, and also many uh, international uh, commercial right. arbitrations. Very interesting, very interesting. But for this uh, uh, international mediation uh, court, uh, only for states to states mediation. Very interesting. That means it's a convention based. Right. That's right. China alone to make a proposal. Mm. Currently, 27 interesting states willing to participate in negotiation for drafting article for very mediations. Interesting. interesting. That's the substantial uh, process to make the rule. That's, that would be a very fascinating new development of yes i think that's the uh, uh uh the way 
to offer the international community not only to court, but also go to the uh, mediator, because mediator is more flexible. Right. And uh, if two like the Saudi and Iran want to uh, uh, settle their historical disputes, religiously, uh, geographically, whatever, they want China as a mediator, actually, mm. in Beijing. China uh, first uh, talking with the uh, Saudi Arabia, and then the Iran, and then they invited two countries uh, to Beijing and uh, uh, negotiation, uh, triple parties. Actually, right. China is the mediator. Yeah. And uh, hopefully they uh, can settle their disputes bilaterally. But China, as the mediator, endorsed because mm. uh, not only for bilateral, because China, as the mediator, endorsed uh, more bonding forces. So it seems to me that's the model for future uh, operation of international mediator court. That means any two countries want to settle their disputes may in invite some countries, China or Pakistan or South Africa, whatever they want to, mm. invite the country as the mediator. Interesting. And then they promote the bilateral negotiation and finally get an agreement, not go to court. This is a fantastic, I mean, I, I, I did not know that it was beyond commercial matters and in actually in these issues. Yeah. It's something which I think in Pakistan we need to follow very closely and support our government and its efforts in yes, negotiating sir. this treaty because this can be a, a foundational shift in how, you yeah. know, especially in a time when the rules-based order is fracturing and yeah. we're seeing deadlocks in the traditional dispute settlement bodies. Yeah. This can be a very interesting, yeah. very exciting new uh, possibility as well. Uh, Professor, you talked about global governance and I'm, I'm cognizant of time as well. We've taken a lot and there's so much more that I want to discuss. But when it, you know, we talked about global governance and, you know, uh, we do see that uh, China has really uh, been active in promoting, you know, what they call shadow institutions now as well, like, you know, def like a, an alternative institutions are developing whether it is, you know, the Asian Infrastructure Bank, Bank, yes. Bank or this Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Yes. Um, you know, there is uh, a lot of excitement about these bodies as well, but then there's also skepticism about how they will impact the, you know, will it actually uh, fracture and divide the global governance or will it actually, you know, in the long term, or are they as effective uh, as the Western-led bodies as well? Uh, how do you see the main battlegrounds, you know, the, the main issues of global governance when it comes to, art, you know, we're seeing artificial intelligence and emerging technologies become a key area. Development finance is now a major issue. And we are seeing a deadlock between the historic Paris Club of creditors and the rise of China as an independent, you know, separate uh, creditor which is now causing a lot of issues when it, because the Chinese model is focused on bilateral financing, infrastructure focus, non-interference uh, and debt for equity swaps. Um, whereas the, you know, the Western states criticize it by saying that this is not sustainable, uh, that there is no transparency 
and actually you know the you know countries are becoming sovereign so i mean this is just one example but these are we are seeing these battlefields emerge yes you know in different areas of global governance there's a chinese perspective and then there's a western attack on that perspective um, and you know what how do you see that playing out how do you see these norms can norms and standards develop in this fractured environment uh, you know especially on key areas like development finance which you know for countries like pakistan or 20 there i believe there are now 27 countries which are under debt distress and 20 more which are on the watch list so if countries start defaulting and there are the system is broken for development finance or mm-hmm. general how do you get out of that deadlock uh, i think is there are many deadlock for the global governance and yeah. uh, uh may we can say uh three uh areas uh priority is a political area for the united nation yeah deadlock for extension of the uh, number of the permanent member yeah. security council change the veto uh yeah. systems so deadlock for decades yeah and uh, uh also for the uh, financial issues in hmm. the uh, actually uh I must say for the international monetary fund mm. because the rule uh provide the United States is a sole veto power more than uh, 15% of a uh, shareholder mm. allow the United States uh, decided alone veto mm. so uh for the Olympic country want to change something but it's a deadlock also mm. United States does not want to change it Mm. And also for WTO, I just uh, uh, yeah. discussed with you for the appeal body, the deadlock, uh, United States want to change it, but for other majority member do not want to change it. Yeah. So there are many And deadlock. climate change, of course. Yeah, climate change yeah. also. Yeah. Uh, there are many deadlock for the uh, global governance. Yeah. Cyberspace. So, yeah, cyberspace. So many issues, but basically you can politically economically and also for human rights issues yeah. because human rights council uh was established in 2006 mm. now is the 2023 and uh, uh originally resolution by the world summit want to uh the council human rights council become separated from the general assembly but uh, still need a review so that's deadlock also Yeah. There are many deadlock. And actually beyond deadlock we're seeing a weaponization of institutions as well. Yeah. You know, like Pakistan's experience with the financial action task force, you know, when we were real estate. Uh-huh. Uh the FATF was a new it, it was not a treaty or a convention which Pakistan signed, yeah. but it was a task force which was able to completely force Pakistan to change mm. uh whatever it required us to do. And that yeah. I think was from an international perspective it was exciting also because it forced compliance in a way like if fatf is successful these kind of bodies you can have fast cooperation on things like climate change and other things because it is standards based bodies yeah but we saw that its processes were politicized by india and to a certain extent by the united states as well and so in pakistan we felt like we were forced into something under the rubric of law mm-hmm. uh, you know and so that ultimately i think as an international law lawyer and as an academic i don't think that's 
that weakens international law because when it is seen as weaponization as just from a purely strategic perspective mm-hmm. then ultimately the law does not develop to benefit humanity it just be- develops to benefit strategic interests of different states mm-hmm. and i i feel that you know that is something which should be resisted uh, so that there is common application of law and norms that are developed based on you know the actual challenges which humanity faces rather than you know protecting the strategic interests of one two or a limited number of countries yes uh, as my understanding of uh, facing the challenge or may we say the deadlock for global governors we need to consider what is the approach to settle uh disputes actually yeah. deadlock so uh the approach is very important seem to me uh China now uh, proposed to the uh, approaches enemies I already mentioned the so-called three common common consultation common benefits and common enjoying the results and if it is the multilateral issue like the United Nations as the international community 193 member as the United Nations uh, family so you need to uh, consider what's the uh common interest for the uh United Nations uh all the member what they are uh, request so you need to consultation right common consultations that's multilateralism or regional maybe asia or latin america or europe you need to consider regional common uh interests common uh, benefits or bilateral Right. like China and the Philippines or China with other countries so uh I think you need to consider approach and to consider what is the issue is a multilateral issue or regional issue or bilateral issues mm. and take the different uh platform to talking to negotiations as we say global governance first uh, uh should be peaceful uh coexistence and uh, mutual respect on the charter of the nation i think a general rule and a general principle we cannot change it fundamentally mm. otherwise mm. not international law exactly so uh also we need a patient because for some disputes deadlock maybe long long time got this deadlock you need time to pension to settle these things right, right. so uh that depends case by case, case, by case china and my understanding pay attention to settle disputes return to our case south china sea because it's a very complicated issues with many nations vietnam philippines malaysia even yeah. for other countries and, well, yeah. and uh, so it's very complicated issues but we need to pay attentions control the uh the situations mm-hmm. and not get a wars and we need to encourage uh uh negotiations bilaterally or regionally actually we we promote the regional solutions right. for China Sea neighboring countries so i think the global governance need a new approaches to settle disputes gather dialogue uh solutions uh depends on the i just mentioned the different uh, uh, areas 
So uh, because international law for uh, last 400 years since beginning the Europe, Europe continents developed nowadays, uh, 400 years written to the beginning we are talking the international law. And I, 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 I fully believe that international law did play crucial functions for global uh, governance from very beginning the European and then the global and, and also yeah. for future. Absolutely. So uh, I'm a lawyer, we're a lawyer. We fully trust the law should be uh, justice and uh, fair. Of course, we need to make the law justice and fair. Mm. And then going to back the global governance, how to make the law. I just mentioned if China proposed to the new institution, International uh, Mediation Court, we invited the interest party, now is 27, maybe more like the uh, 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 Asia Infiltration uh, Banking, Investment Banking, BIIA, and actually uh, AIIB, actually now is 106 members, mm. not only for Asia, uh, except the United States, France, UK, Russia, China, four permanent members around the world become the uh, Asia uh, Infiltration Investment Bank. Mm. So I think you need time let the people to know that's the benefits for them. Then we come down to discuss the rule and for future go global governance. Excellent, Professor. That was really, really refreshing to hear your you know, Chinese perspectives. I think the takeaway from what I can understand is that, you know, even though we are in this era of uncertainty, but there is also simultaneously a lot of hope and because there's so much opportunity as well. There's a yeah. lot of opportunities. I think the successful countries and the successful societies will be the one who develop indigenous deep technical capacity in these issues so that they are able to, you know, engage with these issues as they arise, uh, safeguard their interests as well, while also contributing to, like you said, norms which are fair and just and which will, you know, ultimately ensure durability. So, you know, we're going through a difficult time, but I think these things, these discussions, these interactions are very important. Uh, I think Pakistan needs to learn from the Chinese experience of developing. We learn each other. We learn, but of course, you know, how, how you have structured your internal capacities, your systems of promoting international lawyers, that is something which, you know, I think we would love to learn more about. And like you said, we can share our perspectives on international law so that yes. the Chinese are more aware of Pakistan's historical positions and our concerns. So I thank you for your time. It's my pleasure. And uh, we hope to carry on this engagement with Fudan University and with you as well uh, and with I the hope. Chinese society. Thank I you once that. again, Professor. Thank you. Thank you very much.